Heterodorks. Heterodox dorks. Welcome to the COVID Files. My name is Corinna Cohn. I'm here with my co-host. COVID. My name is COVID. COVID. Yep. COVID week five. Today's week five of being a COVID basket case. Yep. So you're, I'm Corinna Cohn. We're here with my co-host, uh, also known as J.K. Rowling's favorite Midwestern turf. Yeah, I'm followed by J.K. Rowling. My name is Nina Paley. Nina Paley. And Turfs and Trannies, we have a special guest, Heterodorks, today, who I've been very eager to talk to. My illness was so bad when we tried last time, I had to stop. But we're trying again a couple weeks later. I still have COVID. Not that I'm bitter or hyper-focused on this or anything. Yep. You should have had the vaccine. Yeah, well, I did. We're not even going to go into that. You should have had a booster. I did. Not you even going to had a second booster. No, I only had one booster. I got so sick from it, but not as sick as COVID makes me. But we'll have another episode about that. Sure. Anyway, we are welcoming a special guest heterodork, Phil Illy. Welcome, Phil. Hi. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself, because I, I wasn't sure how to introduce you. Okay. So let's see. I'm here on this podcast because I wrote a book about the most common kind of transgenderism. And the book is called Auto-Heterosexual, Attracted to Being the Other Sex. I'm autogynophilic. I found that out about four years ago. And then I got obsessed learning about it. And now there's a book coming out. Wow. And yeah, where I'm sharing what I find, what I found by reading the research. And I try to make it accessible to the lay person um, because lay people are not going to be going on Sci-Hub and reading old sexology articles from the 80s and stuff. They just don't do that. So I had to turn it into an accessible form. Can you define auto-heterosexuality? Yeah, that, that's the uh, attraction to being the other sex. In females, it's called autoandrophilia, which is love of self as a man. And in males, it's called autogynophilia, which is love of self as a woman. And yeah, collectively, female autoandrophilia and male autogynophilia are auto-heterosexual and Basically, auto-heterosexual is, it can be described as cross-gender attraction, you know, as opposed to same-sex attraction. And it, it's these two sexual proclivities, same-sex attraction and cross-gender attraction, that make up virtually the entire LGBTQ um, coalition. So, yeah. Yeah, what is cross-gender attraction? Attraction to cross to crossing gender, like to being the other one. So... If you are, would you call yourself heterosexual as well as auto-heterosexual? Yeah, because those terms are in relation to birth sex. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, in addition to being attracted to yourself as a woman, you are also attracted to women. Yeah, I'm attracted to women. and Yeah, and I'll say that, like, it, it's not conscious. My firsthand experience is not that it's, I'm consciously attracted to myself as a woman. Like, that's not just how it feels, which is why I usually describe it as attraction to being a woman, which because it's yeah, it's it's not as literal as like you look at yourself and then you're like, oh, I'm a woman and I like that. You know, what does it mean? So normally when we talk about attraction, we are talking about attraction to others. Yeah. And yeah. you're using that same word attraction to not exactly yourself. You're not attracted to yourself. You're 
attracted to a, a relational position? What what exactly um, is it that you're talking about well, being attracted could, to? You could also describe it as an attraction to a, a particular type of embodiment. But yeah, like as you brought up, usually when people talk about attraction, they're talking about attraction to others, which those are allosexual attractions and allo means other. And, and my book is about autosexual attractions, which is attractions to self or like ways of being. Hmm. It's just interesting that the word attraction is used for this because we like I have obsessions you know I'm obsessed with making art sometimes and also obsessed with bicycling but I would not use the word attraction I mean I am technically attracted to bicycles and riding them but right it doesn't have a sexual component I guess I guess you use the word attraction because it has a sexual component um I use the word attraction and instead of like typically people talk about, say, like they talk about autogynophilia in terms of arousal, right? And, and that sort of, that limits it just to a physical response and the erotic context. But sexual orientations have a much broader impact on our psyche than just the erotic process itself. And so just as we describe regular sexual orientations as attractions, um, I also use the term attraction for autosexual orientations because um, it's a more broader term and it can encompass both sexual and romantic attraction. I, I feel it's a broader term that's more relatable. All right. So I guess Blanchard called it an erotic target error. Like he talked about it as there being a target. So I guess when I talk about attraction, how we usually use the word attraction, we talk about the target, the target being an other. Right. And his theory, he had an etiological theory about where autogynophilia comes from. And that's the erotic target identity inversion theory. And yeah, it, so like, yeah, usually sexual orientations are towards others. And that's the erotic target you're talking about. And with autosexual orientations, it's about being that type of entity, that erotic target. And the, do you get satisfaction from, I hope this isn't insulting, imagining yourself as the other sex, imagining yourself as a woman? Does that, does that give um, you like a satisfaction that's similar to being with a woman? I don't, I mean, it does, um, I can tell it meets some of the same, same um, sexual and emotional needs. I will say that me personally, I don't like necessarily consciously imagine myself as a woman, at least like too often, because I don't really have that good of an imagination. So, um, but I, I have noticed that, um, for instance, I prefer to wear women's clothing. And so I've been doing that full time for a few years now. And um, yeah, I just, I like if stuff is like feminine coded or you know, if it's something that like I associate with women, I'm more likely to like it, whatever it is, and think it's better just simply because of that. So probably through the course of this, I'm going to be trying to like relate to what you're talking about <laughs> and trying to figure out because we're both males and we're both different in some ways, right? 
Probably, I assume so. So yeah, uh, I'm going to try to relate to something that you just said. So, although I don't tend to dress up, uh, I wore I wore a, a t-shirt and and in fact a, a men's sweatshirt to to work today because it says Nevada on it. That's where I graduated from, and a bra because I have boobs and I I need to control those somehow. Um, Congratulations. On on the uh, the boobs or the bra. On the boob or, having, or, or, or yeah. the self knowledge that I should. Anyway, um, <laughs> radical feminists have said that they're fake. They, well, yeah, uh, they that, are. That what boob, are fake? Boob, they've said Karuna's boobs are fake. Not only a couple have. I don't think that. I don't think there's a poll. I no, 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 no. It's not. It's, it's not a radical feminist, you know, position. It's just no, some no, no. radical feminist people on Twitter. Yeah, some people, some people on Twitter. On Twitter. Right. Yeah. Lesbians who also identify as breast connoisseurs. Right. But <laughs> That's in their bio, breast connoisseurs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And and I believe them. I believe them. Why why would I doubt them? Yeah. But, I would believe them too. Yeah. But uh I about ten years ago, actually I guess thirteen years ago now, what fourteen years ago, was introduced to this phenomenon called the Renaissance Festival. And I absolutely love like absolutely love dressing up for the Renaissance Festival. And what I noticed is that a couple of years ago, there are so many trannies at the Renaissance Festival now that um, I still love dressing up for the Renaissance Festival, but I have started to, to layer in men's garb into my wardrobe so that I can actually, to me, it's sort of fun to tweak the trannies by dressing up in men's garb and still being like, androgynous right like they can see basically read you as a transsexual and then be confused why you're in men's clothing yes i think that's funny yeah and and i and i have just as much enjoyment dressing up in the men's garb and making it like uh it's not really obviously i don't look extremely masculine wearing wearing the men's garb but i love the outfits just as much you wore makeup when you did that well i know but that was just to that, you, that was that was to double down on the on the family. Yeah, it was a I forget who that uh, silver screen star was that wore the top hat and the, the yeah. Do it. Do the the Bowie thing. But I loved dressing up. I and I still do. I love dressing up in those outfits. I think they're just absolutely magnificent. But day to day, I don't want to go through any effort doing any of that stuff. Yeah, like I I get it. Not wanting to put in the effort. Like even if. Um, I don't know your particular history, but even if it's like fun at first, often with repeat um, exposure to any stimuli, it just becomes a milder response, emotional or sexual or whatever. You just get used to it and it just becomes normal and nothing special in a way. That could be. Yeah. Do you think that's going to happen with you, Phil? I mean, yeah, it already has to some extent. I, I mean, I stopped repressing about like four years ago. And at first I could get, um, like there was more of an intense, like euphoric response. And I'm not strictly using gender euphoria in like the euphemistic way. Like sometimes there's arousal, but oftentimes they would just be like, it feels nice. It's, it's like basically the same warm fuzzies as if you're like, um, you know, just spending time with someone that you're like in a romantic relationship with or 
you know, just holding hands or something. This is the simple, small pleasantries of regular relationships. You can sort of get access to similar feelings from um, embodying the other sex when, when you have like auto heterosexuality. You're shaking your head, Corinna. No, I don't understand that. No. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> when I talk about this stuff, it is, um, it's, it's not meant to say that like if, if something, if someone can't relate to a particular detail or anything, yeah. I say it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't fit the category. Cause I'm, I'm trying to describe something that millions of people belong, like a category that millions of people belong to. And there's just going to be so much um, variance between each individual and how they express it and feel it and the severity and the types of it they have. And, and sort of like their life experiences and their own particular associations they've developed. Yeah. So there's just, there's a lot of factors. So I wouldn't say it was euphoric for me. That's not the word that I would use. I would say more of a relief, but when I started passing and people started treating me differently and the relationships that I made had a different quality to them, that felt uh, very, like I felt like I could finally start making connections with people. Right. Was it, was it like you were finally present in your life that you weren't before or that had meaning where it didn't before? Uh, I wouldn't put it that way. It was more that I had become like being, being a boy in the world, being a young man in the world had become so isolating and so, so terrible because I, I just didn't, I, I had a couple of, um, friends who were male, but they weren't like, it wasn't close at all. Uh, it was just like people that, that you might hang out with at school. Um, uh, except for one friendship I had that was, was, was with a, a, a male and we drifted apart in high school. But at, at that point, like by the time I got through high school, I was extremely isolated and, uh, had very, very difficult times, uh, making relationships with anybody. I felt like a complete weirdo. I was extremely ugly. I showed Nina my photo from he wasn't when ugly. I was 17. was not ugly. I, but but I thought I was. I thought I was horrific looking. And um, when I, after I uh, transitioned and started passing and, you know, people would treat me differently, it was just like, okay, finally, finally I can start like being myself is how it felt. I know now that that was a delusional state that I was in but that's how I felt at the time. Well, I mean, just having those emotions isn't necessarily delusional. Like if you did feel more of yourself, then like, I'm not saying you're literally, it means you're the other sex or anything like that. But if, if you did feel more comfortable presenting in more of like a cross gender persona, it is a part of yourself. Um, I don't think it's delusional necessarily. I would say the delusional component was thinking that that was a prerequisite for me being authentic, right? I had, I, I sort of had that sort of, you know, we describe it differently now than we would have before, but I thought that that was, that, that was a, a necessary and required step for me to be my true self. Yeah. When did you start experiencing gender dysphoria? Mm, uh, late uh, elementary school. So that would have been right around Tanner stage two. Oh, you had an early puberty then. I didn't. No? Well, how old were you? 
probably 10 or 11. Okay. Yeah, I guess that's a little early for males. But I guess it's not. I might be biased because I had a late one. So I'm like, damn, that's early. <laughs> you but you had a late what? Late puberty. How Well, hmm, what do you mean like, late? <laughs> like my voice didn't start dropping until I was around 15. And I was shorter than basically all the other guys by the time I started growing. But now I'm taller than the vast majority of men. Yeah, sounds like yours was later than mine. Yeah. What so, what like when you experienced that dysphoria, what sort of um situations made it happen? Uh, you know, I was talking to somebody recently about this and um it, it had been like a memory I hadn't brought up in a while. I wouldn't say it's repressed, but just something that I hadn't pulled off the shelf is when I was in 7th grade, that's when we first started having PE classes and being in the the boys locker room was like the worst feeling possible. Wow. Being in the girls locker room was the worst feeling possible I had. Yeah. You should have been a boy though, Nina. Yeah. Maybe you should have transed. I should have transed out of school. <laughs> but should have transed in, out of in, PE. I, in a lot of ways, I felt like I, I was intruding in that space. Right. Like you were in, that you didn't belong in the, the boys room. Yeah. It's funny. Cause like, I, I felt so alienated. Well, from many things, including girls. I mean, girls were doing all this stuff that made no sense to me. And, uh, that I had contempt for cause they were all by the time junior high rolled around, they were all putting on makeup and stuff. And I hated that stuff. And I'm like, what was wrong with them? They seemed like zombies, but I didn't feel like a dangerous intruder. I felt like a, just like a a prisoner, just someone who was forced to be in a place I didn't belong. Same Z's. <laughs> <laughs> but trancing didn't exist when I was a kid. All we had was bulimia and anorexia. Yeah, those are good uh, standbys, though. Yeah, they were they were pretty good. Yay! So when you were when you were in middle or high school, Phil, did you? feel like you got on with the other boys um i didn't i didn't really learn social skills that well um yeah because of the tism um so i mean i mostly had male friends or like rather tried to have male friends it it wasn't until i was an adult that i realized i preferred women's company and consciously switched over to mostly being friends with women Mm. And, and left behind my male hobbies so that I could do that. So, Phil, I've heard you say frequently that you are autistic. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I don't... It's the only way to explain writing such a book. No, it's really not. Uh, how old are you? <laughs> 35. You're 35. Okay. So, like, I think that there is a... Well, I'm curious about your autism diagnosis because I think if you were my age you wouldn't have an autism diagnosis like I think there's a cultural aspect to it yeah no I get what you're saying um but like I wrote a a long time ago like when I first heard about Asperger's I was like oh that sounds relatable and also when I wrote an autism chapter in my book and I read autism studies and it's like yep this checks out 
then I have a lot of the various correlates of it. So, yeah, no, I'm I'm pretty confident. I'm. Oh, but you're self-diagnosed. Yeah, I don't have the money for professional diagnosis right yeah. now. Okay, but we'll do it for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've already taken the the psychometric test, the autism quotient. I've taken it a couple times. I score above the clinical cutoff both times. Like, can, yeah. Can you tell my what expression I have? Um, no, it's very subtle. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's fair because I I have a very flat affect. But yeah, no, I mean, I mean, the reason I said that, like, the only way to account for my book existing is me being autistic is just that, like, if I didn't, I, I think it's unlikely that I would have developed a fixation on reading this technical literature that is not really as inviting as, say, other things like reading social media or things like that. You know, there's there's sort of hmm. there's barriers to entry with reading this sort of stuff, and it's not necessarily that interesting to most people, but I think I that's, just... I think that's pretty cultural. I think that in, I mean, I'm 54, so I'm almost 20 years older than you. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of difference among humans. That's not a diagnosable condition and other, you know, older generations just accept that and deal with it. But younger and younger people sort of got more and more into autism. And when I first learned about Asperger's, I was like, oh my God, you know, I'm like hypersensitive to sound and, and, uh, you know, really socially sensitive. And I have all these obsessions and uh, I'm pretty confident that I could get a diagnosis of Asperger's or some kind some place on the autism spectrum. But I just don't because I'm like, well, what, what would that do? Yeah, like, you know? I don't see the utility in it. Yeah, and it's it, yeah. It, it's it's an identity among a lot of people, and I'll see all these things online. It's like, oh, you know, you know, you're autistic when you blah, you know, this, that, and the other thing. That's like, yeah, right. I'm like that. Other yeah. people I know are like that, and I just don't know if it's worth. Because uh, you know, autism. I've I've also known people who are unquestionably autistic. And when I encounter them, it's like, okay, you know, there's something going on with them that is not going on with me. Like, right. And I know the sort of people you're talking about. And sometimes I've been around them and I've sort of thought, wow, you're like too autistic, you know, because it's obviously just like relative where whatever amount I am is fine. But like, if they're more than like, mm-hmm. that's not okay, clearly. But yeah, no, I lean towards, I know you're saying there's like this cultural thing with um, it's more likely that people are willing to identify as such or get diagnosed as such. And I think that's true, but I lean towards essentialism, you know, with the whole nature nurture thing. And at least for me personally, it made sense of a whole bunch of disparate experiences uh, in a pretty cohesive way that mm. same as learning about autogynophilia did. So, well, so, so you're yeah. culturally autistic. I don't don't think I'm culturally. (laughs) Yeah, like rapid onset autism. (laughs) You're auto auto autistic. You're autistic. The aut is already in it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's part of why I think there's so much overlap between people that are autistic and that have autosexual orientations. Um, 
because it seems like the autism is a general turn inward and it wouldn't surprise me if there's some sort of brain mechanism like sort of like the one described by Blanchard that could like direct um one's like erotic interest inward okay so i have some yeah. thought out questions about okay, auto, auto heterosexuality if auto heterosexuals are oriented primarily towards an idea of themselves or whatever you call it uh what exactly are they seeking in a sexual romantic relationship with another person it's a lot of the same stuff that allosexual people want companionship you know obviously the sexual part so like when i'm talking about auto heterosexuals it, it's a spectrum where you know someone could be you can sort of think of it as like say you have like a hundred points to allocate towards your attraction to the other sex like of those hundred points how many of them are auto and how many of them are allo you know you have like say like i i'm attracted to women like my attraction to women isn't my entire amount of attraction to them there's also the attraction to being like them and so it's basically it really depends on the person you know someone could be if someone's auto and allo sides are of of comparable strength they'll often have this confusing experience of dating starting to date someone and then you know there's a honeymoon period and they're all into it and then like a few months or a year later that auto side comes back out and then they start wanting to cross-dressing and such. And then, you know, that can conflict with the relationship a lot of the times. If, if the person, like say if it's um, someone's dating someone of the other sex, if that, if their partner is heterosexual, then that partner might not like the cross-dressing obviously. So do you think that auto sexuality is a spectrum and that everybody is on the spectrum where they, have a certain, you know, number of points of their attraction, a certain percentage of their attraction that's directed outward mm-hmm. and a certain point that uh, amount that's directed inward, but in many people that it would just be so little directed inward that they wouldn't attend to it or notice it. Right. It could be either like negligible or like absolutely non-existent in some people. Um, but base, sort of like how with um, with gender-based attraction, it's um, there's this continuum between attraction to men and attraction to women, right? And so just as there's that di- gender dimension of attraction, there's also a location dimension, which is like self versus other. And so attraction can vary along that continuum as well. And these are orthogonal dimensions. So I've had two relationships, only one really significant relationship with an autogynophile. But I've had a lot of relationships with narcissists. And I have, you know, everybody struggles with or has some narcissistic traits. And I will say that in relationships, there is an aspect of like falling in love with yourself when you fall in love with another person because this other person is like thinking you're awesome and then you think that you're awesome and then it's like so enjoyable to think that you're awesome. Yeah, you get the feelings of well-being and just the validation that you're attractive and worth dating basically because someone is doing such. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have that and would you would you call that experience like an auto component of it? Like would, would... Mm, No, not because it's not, it's... I mean, I see what you're saying, that it does reflect on yourself. But, I mean, if you were specifically 
attracted to having people see you a certain way? It's really hard to tease apart. Like this sort of gets into the question of like meta attraction. Like when you're attracted to someone because of what their traits say about you. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, it's, that's an interesting question. Um, I haven't really thought through much about whether people with more conventional types of orientations, like sort of if meta attraction is something that is broader than just autogonophilia and autoandrophilia, like if, if people with other types of sexual orientations can have their own types of meta attraction. Well, I'll say that one mm. partner of mine who is simply a narcissist and not an autogynophile, he was clearly falling in love with himself when we got together. He just thought he was the best thing in the world and, and us being together made him feel so good about himself. And it was really mostly about himself that he just pictured himself or, or embodied this cool person that he wanted to be. That uh, sounds annoying. Because I was, well, it wasn't, I mean, I was doing the same thing, right? It was like two narcissists <laughs> oh, okay. in love. It happens a lot, actually. Narcissists totally fall in love. Um, I like to believe that I, my narcissistic traits are much lower at this point in my life, largely because <laughs> I've learned, yeah, Corinne is doubtful. Um, yeah, wait, wait, I, I, that's a good thing to shoot for, Nina. <laughs> aspiration yeah exactly um i'm proud of you you should feel good about yourself (laughs) i need you i need you to say that over and over again corinna validate me you're 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 doing great dina keep going (laughs) but anyway there yeah that was uh and again i'm trying to relate to what you're talking about and and there is a maybe i should just call it like a narcissistic component of of love that I think a lot of people experience. Have you ever experienced that, Corinna, when you got with men? Was it like this person? Well, just, just like having it change your self image, boost your ego, you know, like thinking you were more awesome because you were with this person that you also liked. I mean, that's not very relatable to me. I don't know. I'm I'm sort of a weirdo myself, so it's possible that I screwed myself up too badly when I was a a teenager for me to really have a, anything approaching a normal relationship. So it's hard for me to say. Can't argue with that. All right. So Phil. Yeah. I have heard you say in another interview that that a good match for an auto gynophile is an auto androphile, an auto androphilic woman would be a good match for an autogynophilic It seems like a man. possibility, you know? And I've definitely seen, there's some like pre-transition people, I, you know, non-transition people I know in my social circles that like, I can tell each of the, these are heterosexual couples, and I can tell each of the partners has like a little bit of the auto-heterosexuality. And I've also noticed that, say like post-transition auto-heterosexuals, they'll sometimes date each other you know, like a trans man and a trans woman together mm-hmm. based on their attractions. Like neither of them are going to be the homosexual ideology. So we can sort of like have a pretty strong guess that they're both auto heterosexual ideology. And yeah, so it does seem to happen. There's a lot of 
like variables as to whether any particular relationship will work well. Um, I, th- I tend to think that it it's, I don't have any data to back this up, but it's just like a hunch I have right now that if, if autoantrophiles and autogynophiles are to date each other, it seems to work better if they're either both transitioned or both not transitioned. Whereas like if, it, if it's lopsided, then I don't, something about it seems to not work as often, or at least I don't see it as often. My, uh, my autogynophilic ex, the one that I really genuinely loved, he ended up with a trans man with a autoandrophilic woman. And last I'd heard they'd been together like 10 years or more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't heard from him for like six years, but, uh, they'd been together like a long time. She transitioned and I don't think he did. I think he acknowledged that there was just no way he would ever pass not remotely and that right. he, he would be much that's, prettier male than trying to look yeah, female. That's sort of where I'm at. It's unfortunate, but you know, some of us have to be realistic about these things. He did get electrolysis all over his entire body. That's a good move. But well, yeah. good for him. <laughs> good for him, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but I just I that that like when I heard you say that, I was like, well, I wonder if there is something to that. It's only one data point, but in my life that that fits. But I am wondering if you have these two auto heterosexuals of opposite sex and they are attracted to each other and attracted to themselves as the opposite sex, when they are having sex, are they experiencing sex with a member of the opposite sex? Like the autogynophilic man, if an autogynophilic man is with an, let's just say a trans man, is he being turned on? Because And he's heterosexual, right? Like he's genuinely heterosexual. So he only wants to have sex with a woman and the woman that he's with is heterosexual and she wants to be having sex with a man. And I will say, by the way, that when I was with, I've had two autogynophilic lovers. And when I was with them, they were absolutely unquestionably men. I am heterosexual and they were men. That was, there was just absolutely no question about that. I feel like you're (laughs) implying a lot there, Nina, but I don't know what you mean. But I am wondering if they're with each other, are they experienced? Because like you're either heterosexual or you're not. So if you're heterosexual, you're going to have sex with someone who's of the opposite sex. But both you and that other person are imagining themselves as or wanting to be trying as hard as possible to be the opposite sex. And if this were actually achieved then your partner wouldn't actually be attracted to you or would it go all the way through so that, I mean, like what, how does the heterosexuality, well, like, like something's, something's got to give. Let's give Phil a chance. Give Phil a chance here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So with, with, with auto heterosexuality often associated with it is an attraction to androgyny, for instance, you know, like, the term chasers, for instance, for like men that are into trans women. Also, you've probably noticed that like autogynophilic men can also be into masculine women that have like short haircuts and such. 
I mean, all men can be into that. <laughs> uh, not all men. No, that's true. Not I, no, all men. No. Many men. Many <laughs> men can be into that. <laughs> right. But I'm saying an AGP might particularly like it. Yeah. Rather than being like, this is acceptable. They're instead like, this is preferable. Uh-huh. You know. But yeah, when you have autoheterosexuality, it increases your interest often in um, androgyny and your sexual partners. And also um, um, just the dynamics you'd have with those partners, you'd want them to be different um, than the conventional heterosexual way of mating. Um, Wait, what's the conventional heterosexual way of mating? But I wanted you to answer, Nina, when you said they're definitely men. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like you know. What is that? Yeah. How, how, how do you know they were male, men? Male... <laughs> um, let's see. Their, their physical <laughs> structure, their, their, their smell, their strength, their shoulder-to-hip ratio, their mm. organs... Their sexual organs, their throbbing sexual organs yes. and how they were used. Right. I mean, when you're heterosexual, you something more primitive takes over. Something, I really wouldn't call it gender. I would call it sex. So whatever, you know, fun stuff, whatever fun social stuff my partner and I did when it came down to, you know, doffing the clothes and the raw physical experience. That's a man, like regardless of what he's doing, regardless of what he's saying. Right. I get what you're saying that physically he's a man, but often with autogynophiles, I don't know if it's in your case, but like often with autogynophiles, they'll maybe say like, if it comes to like penis and vagina intercourse, they'll, off to prefer to be on the bottom. Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. No, he was, he seemed to have yeah. these ideas of what women were like, and he wanted to do that. Right. He had a, yeah. the idea of a woman as a pillow queen and he wanted to be the pillow queen. Yeah. Well, with autosexuality, yeah. Being a pillow queen when you're autosexual kind of makes sense too. Cause it's like, you can just focus on what's happening to you, but yeah, I, that's definitely a, like a trope or I've I've definitely seen that idea of like trans women being pillow queens but he's still like unquestionably a man I mean like my feeling was like I don't care you know like I'm a horny heterosexual woman and this is a man and I don't care he seemed to have something more going on like for him it was sorry Corinne I I know none of this Uh, makes sense obviously all all three of us obviously know what a pillow queen is but for for anybody in our audience who doesn't (laughs) Would either of the two of you like to explain it? Because I'd I'd be interested to know if what you're talking about. So, yeah. So yeah, pillow queen is basically when you're being sort of a passive receptive partner that's not really initiating much. You sort of just like lay there and let things happen to you. Oh. And and in the case of my ex, he he resented women. I, by the way, I loved this guy. He had a great sense of yeah. humor, very smart, really terrific guy. But the fact that that doesn't change the fact that he also had like some real issues with women and he really resented them. But he had the idea that women are passive, do nothing, and that it's like the the privilege of the princess, that all women are sort of like princesses. And it seemed very unrealistic to me. 
but that was his idea of what women are like. And so that's how he wanted to act. I think both sexes can have pretty unrealistic ideas of what the other sex is like, you know, like there's lots of women wanting to find men that are in touch with their feelings and have a great job and totally have their life together and all these things that men aren't necessarily like a lot of the times. But they're describing women, right? (laughs) In touch with their feelings. Men aren't famous for being in touch with their feelings. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That like, I've just definitely seen that maybe it's more contemporary discourse that women are looking for more emotionally intelligent male partners. Um, Women have always looked for more emotionally intelligent male partners. (laughs) And we've always been disappointed. Right. Yeah. But... Yeah, well, like you were saying with, um, to go back to the, like, when you're talking about your relationship with that guy, like, you're, Can, from my perspective. I, I, gotta, I gotta interrupt for a second. I am yeah. so sorry, You have to vomit. No it worries. Is, it is so weird listening to you two talk about, like, attraction and sex, and I'm just like, how how is it that you, Nina, and you, Phil, like, make more sense talking to each other about this topic than, like, me and Nina, or me and anybody, because we didn't have... Because you didn't have your genitals we mutilated when you were a teenager? We didn't when we were teenagers, yes. Okay, fine. Well, that's an okay answer. But it's... I'm just like... Okay, whatever. We have functioning gonads. This is this mm. is like... I, Bragger. I don't anymore because I'm menopausal. Right. Which is such a relief. Yeah, a lot of my life was affected by hormone poisoning. And I could not choose my orientation. If I could, these experiences would not have happened. Right. You would have chosen women. Yeah. But yeah, you not, don't get to I choose. I would choose women too. Yeah. Well, you did. <laughs> Lucky you. You're a heterosexual man. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I want to say I'm sorry, Karina, but it's like, it wasn't that great. It was just a wild ride. It was a okay. weird. Well, you don't have to recount all your your victories at the moment. I wouldn't call I them victories. You. I really would not call them victories. I would just call them experiences, and they're all over now. But I am talking to an autogynophile, and I have some curiosity about the autogynophile experience. Yeah, I think like with the sword dynamics you mentioned with uh, that guy, like you were talking about how you would just see him as a man. Right. Like physically, he'd be a man. You wouldn't care about the dynamics. Whereas like probably in his mind, he sees your female body and likes that. But also, in addition, wants there to be a particular vibe or dynamic in the exchange. Yeah. And and there was because I was super gender bendy. I was super, you know, I've had my own gender dysphoria issues and uh, not. Oh, shit. Are are you autoandrophilic? Well, I would say that I was or if these categories existed or if language if we had language for it i think i would have gone for that um it was mostly that <coughs> i didn't like being a woman so i think there's a component to all of this uh all all three of us of an interest in wanting to be the opposite sex but also a real repulsion from our actual sex, our actual, I did not want to be a woman and I was at odds with my body. And if I was going to be a woman, I wanted to be, you know, an angular 
androgynous woman, which I'm more of now, but at that time in my life, I was much more curvy and it was just weird to look at myself. It was like my body had ideas that I didn't share with it, but I very much didn't want to be a woman. I guess at the time I met him, I was much more relaxed about it. Actually, I was living in San Francisco at the time and I'd done some drag experiments, which, which relaxed me a lot. Oh, you you like drag king? Mm-mm. Drag queen. Oh, okay. Some some cisvestism. I never wore makeup yeah. or women's clothes or anything like that. I like would not wear that stuff until I lived in the Castro, and then I was like, oh, men are like basically when I was eight years old, I said I'm not going to wear anything a boy won't wear. And then oh, when, but then once you saw men doing it, you're like, oh, it's okay now. Yeah, I was like, well, it. men do this, and then I was <laughs> that- like, well, I can do it too. And it actually really, uh, it really <laughs> opened opened my life up. Yeah, it sounds like some. I mean, that <laughs> sort of logic you're describing sounds a bit autoantrophilic. Yeah, <laughs> like, like oh, the men are wearing women's clothes now. I can. Now yeah, I can well, that was what it. it what it went through. And mm. I, I don't. I really, <laughs> I still really don't like the idea that women are supposed to be this particular way, and that I'm supposed to be this way just because I'm female. And that I'm supposed to wear makeup and, you know, I'm supposed to wear these uncomfortable clothes. Um, But the men were doing it by choice. And it was like, oh, it can be a choice. It can be play. It can be like a fun thing. And I can put it on and take it off just like these drag queens are doing. And I can wear a wig if I want and take that off. Yeah. And Uh, similarly, like, I I would prefer, I like, would prefer if this stuff was a choice and it wasn't. I'd like a loosening of gender norms as well. And I, I think in the long term, the sort of the the trans moment that's happening now is sort of going to chill people, have people chill out a little bit about um, caring about what sex someone is with regards to their gender expression. So like that, I'm looking forward to that. I think that'll be good. Well, I think radical feminists had that nailed before this trans moment came along. Yeah, well, in full transparency, I'm not a radical feminist. But you can't um, be, you're a man. I mean, I it's possible for men to think that that doctrine is good and the right type of feminism. Um, I don't, though. I mean, it's, it, it's descended from Marxism, and it's, it's very social construction-y, and it, it ignores that there's sex differences in psychology and all that. So... Does it though? There's a lot. There's a lot uh-huh. happening with radical feminism. There's a lot of things at this point now that are called radical feminism. And I just got in a big Twitter argument with radical feminists, and uh, there's there's schisms happening for sure. But at any rate, I'm getting off this topic. What I wanted to know, since I had described the experience of like the the physicality of maleness and femaleness. So are you saying that? The auto-heterosexuals, when they're together, they like the the social aspect of gender bending. That's a turn-on for them. But beneath it all, they are responding to each other's sexed bodies because they are heterosexual. I that I think both are happening simultaneously. Right. No, that's what I was yeah, saying. Yeah. Like that 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 yeah, there's yeah. the social, you know, gender is sort of a social thing. And that they're they're responding to that while at the same time. Responding to each other's sex bodies. Right. Yeah. And, and 
you know, like there, there's like differences between um, the sexes in terms of obviously our bodies, you know, and also, you know, the types of clothes we wear, the types of way we usually behave. That's the social roles. stuff. That's all. That's all gender. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, you can collapse it all into gender. I, if you want, I, I, I think of it more using the like the subtypes from autogynephilia. I, I apply that thinking to this gender stuff to get a more uh, finer look at it rather than just it being anatomy and social stuff. There's how we have our different behaviors and ways of thinking and um, yeah, our dress and all that. Like these are all like you, you could collapse all that to social stuff. But I think that'd be losing a lot of the detail in the process. I guess the reason I do it is that that stuff is, I guess what I'd call mutable, mutable or performative, whereas the body is not. I get they're comparatively more mutable for sure, you know, but there is like transsexualism. So like th- there's some mutability to the body, uh, but not as much as the trans movement um, acts like there is. But I think there's some mutability there, too. The answer to my question about what's going on. With these couples. Oh. All the things at once. All the like, things at once. It's yeah, like both sides of them, the alohet and autohet sides will probably all be liking different things, but it's all mixed together. Okay. Yeah. If your partner is responding to you, is responding to your body, your sexed body, right? Your partner is heterosexual and they are yeah. sexually responding to your sexed body. That seems like it is a big reminder that you have a sexed body. There seem to be autogynophiles. Yeah, you just sort of ignore it. Like with, with the autosexual stuff, like if there's something that doesn't fit in with the vibe you're going for, you just kind of try to ignore it. But when people are having yeah. sex, part your partner it usually makes a feedback loop when heterosexuals have sex, where each person is responding to the other person and that ups it right. more and more. Like that's... Yeah, well, there there is that. That, that interpersonal feedback. Um, but then when there's auto-heterosexuality, in addition, there's also an internal feedback too, you know? So. But the like, internal feedback, like the internal feedback is like, you're feeling like extra womanly when you're with your female partner that is having an internal feedback where she's feeling extra manly. Um, I mean, your your respective internal feedbacks may not be in sync because you uh-huh. can't know exactly what that's like a more of a private thing. Um, but um, yeah, I would say like if if you had a sexual interaction between an autogynophile and an autoandrophile, there's that there's the feedback between those two, and then there's also each of their respective internal feedbacks. So there's like three separate like pairings happening in a way and then they all interact yeah it it's it's such an individual thing as to what um what's going on any individual partnerships um sexual exchange because you know some autoandrophiles might be like i will only top and be aggressive and then other ones will be like i want to be a bottom wait you know what what uh, you're doubting that some autoandrophiles want a top? I, I just... Let me just... 
spell this out so that I'm understanding it. We're talking about an auto Android. We're talking about a woman who is sexually into identi- like identifies as male, like attractive, and to then being is male. using yeah, and is we're using like a strap on or something. That could be one way of doing it. Um, I mean, they could also just be the more energetic dominant partner, which isn't strictly gendered, but often is associated with that. You know? All right. So in that case, that's t- like being on tops sexually, even if it's vaginal and in- penetration intercourse. Right. Yeah. Yes. I've had that experience with my pillow queen. Okay. Yeah. Well, wait, hang on for a second. <laughs> hang on for a second. So is it the case that some AGP men, when they're having intercourse, when you're saying that they want to be pillow queens, they want to penetrate their partner, but they want to be on the bottom? Yes. That's that's one way of doing it, yeah. They could also just be being penetrated, say, like, if the autoantophile has a strap on, or just yeah. is using their fingers or something else. You know, it... Okay. Yeah, they could just be being submissive there's a whole bunch of different ways to like internally symbolize the sort of vibe you're going for okay the more you know i'm so glad i don't have sex anymore i'm just thinking about this and i'm just like i'm so glad i'm done with this retired yeah i am retired yes uh all right well i guess that answers my question and we can talk about other things now okay let me ask a hypothetical Let's say, not not this involves anybody on on this podcast, but let's say that there was one person who had had sex reassignment surgery that was a male, but that person enjoyed being on top anyway. Yeah, that can happen. Hmm. I wouldn't say that's the norm, but like that can, I've definitely heard of that. Okay. But you're going to find yourself an autogynophile? What? <laughs> No, I'm reef. Never mind. Never mind all of that. It's a friend. It's a friend of mine on Twitter who I'm asking for. Okay, yeah. But yeah, no, it's 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 like really high, highly individual about what what each individual's associations are with these respective constructs that they're trying to emulate. Because each person, mm-hmm. we all have our own individual associations based on our life experience. So there's. It's a lot of unpredictability, even though there are these sort of broader patterns that we can point out. Huh. Well, I'm thinking a lot about just thinking about the narcissistic aspect of sex. I would like to think that when people are having sex, they are so focused on the other person that both people lose themselves utterly, but probably... That doesn't happen that often unless you're Benjamin Boyce. Yeah, I don't. It, it, it probably depends on the individuals involved. I mean, if, if they're super allosexual and just directly attracted to the other person's body and don't think too much about the dynamic of the interaction, um, then yeah, that could be a thing. I, th- I think with males, that I bet that'd be more common with males if I were to guess like just the direct attraction to the other person and just being lost in their attractiveness. And I've had it sometimes 
But then other times I've thought like, I have to pee. Should I pee now or should I pee later? If they're into it. <laughs> no, that's not what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about bladder <laughs> health. <laughs> gotcha. Just things like that. All right. So I have a question. Yeah. Um, no. You're not interested in that. Well, I mean, I can tell that I have metaandrophilia, but I don't think I'd be able to. I mean, I might later in my life, but there's just no rush because, like, my physique isn't right for it. You know, like if I were to try to, because mm-hmm. like with meta attraction, it matters sort of like how you are in comparison to the other person. And for example, I'm six foot four and quite muscular, at least in the upper body. So I'd theoretically have to, for me to like probably really be into this, I'd probably have to find a guy that's like six, eight or something, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's just, and also I, I know that it's meta attraction and not genuine androphilia, so it just seems sort of like not worth putting thought or energy into. Oh, so so how do you know it? How do I know what? That it's that it's meta attraction. Cause I'm not like authentically attracted to men, but like the dynamic of like like say like if I were to have sex with a man, there's no fucking way I would top. There's just no way, right? Whereas, like, if it was just a direct attraction to someone's body, I would think it wouldn't matter as much exactly what role you were playing. Mm-hmm. But, like, if I were to be with a man, it would probably be absolutely required that I'd play more of a bottom role. But, like I said, I I like women so much that I want to be one, so I'm, like, probably going to keep dating women. So the experience you would seek out with a man would be to make you feel more like a woman in this experience. It would be to it, have a woman. experience. Yeah, to have that dynamic. Yeah, it wouldn't be because I want to be like, because I'm into the man himself. Because I'm, I'm not. <laughs> and I'm not saying that in just like a sort of like a no homo way. I just, I just can tell that I'm not. I'm sorry, Phil. Nobody, nobody listening can see this, but with you, with your beautiful eye eye shadow and blue eyeshadow and and your blue dress and a little bit of stubble going, yeah, yeah. no homo. <laughs> yeah, it's a vibe that's gonna, for sure. That's going to live in my imagination for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, it's a type of heterosexuality. I it's. So, all right. So, what is pseudo bisexuality then? Yeah, that's meta attraction. Like, okay. Or like meta and in autogynophiles, that'd be meta androphilia, or in autoandrophiles, that would be auto or metogynophilia. And yeah. So, if you were meta attracted to someone of of the same sex, yeah, would, would you ever entertain a thought like, "Wow." That person looks like they're having a bad day. I really wish I could go grab them a coffee and try to cheer them up without it seeming seeming too flirtatious. And I would never do that, no. <laughs> but it could be. I 
funny seeing her laugh. I don't know why that's funny. Yeah. No, I would... I like listening to a post-op transsexual talk to an autogynophile. You just have such different ideas. You are such... It's just funny. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I don't think... I, I haven't really ever seen men in public and then been like thinking about going to flirt with them or anything like that. It's not. Oh. Yeah. But not you, but that could somebody who is meta attracted could think. Yeah. That. Yeah. It's possible for meta attraction to be like quite romantic in the sense that um, like a meta attracted autogatophile could like have fantasies about becoming a wife and like having his kids and getting married and, and all that stuff. And it can still be from meta attraction, which is part of mm-hmm. why it's so confusing for the people that experience it. Cause they would, you would, cause it, it, it's hard to tell from the inside. I think the different types of attraction, cause it's at root, it's still just attraction. And mm-hmm. um, so I think it's, it's really confusing for a lot of people that experience it as to like what's going on in their brain. Well, that that would be uh, very difficult to pull apart from actual attraction if it's if yeah. it's something so complete where you think that one of the ways that you want to show attention or affection to somebody is by trying to make their day better or doing something special for them, and then thinking that that that's a genuine attraction. Right. Yeah. It's. Yeah, it's it's really hard to tell the line between like what is genuine and what is meta. And there's I've also seen good arguments that meta attraction counts as legitimate attraction. And you know, there's autogynophiles that have gotten married to men and had those relationships for a long time and they last longer than you know, conventional heterosexual relationships. So it's yeah, it it can happen. And like, for instance, I think there's a meta attracted autoandrophiles that are in the lesbian scene and identify as lesbians, but it's just meta attraction. Hmm. I, I know your listeners that are lesbian won't like hearing that, but you know, like for instance, like a stone butch or whatever that, that would only want to be the active partner with a woman. That seems to me the same equivalent of when an autogynophile wants to be a pillow princess. And And you're saying that she might not really be attracted to women except that they make her feel masculine when she's with them. It, I mean, in that sort of scenario, I, I think it's often like men are not an option for someone like that. For, Why not? For because, because the, that heterosexual dynamic of the man having, more power or strength or whatever, okay. or having even just having a penis, um, that, that difference of having a penis can make it difficult. Cause like autogynophiles, you know, everyone comes with one hole, right. But like only half the people have a pole. And so like, yeah, that's in the literature. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I think with an autoantrophilic female, that's, that's being with a man, if, if this female is very autoandrophilic to the point that there's no like alloandrophilia left or very little, 
it can seem like not interesting to be with a man or just it doesn't make sense to their brain um and so like being with a woman is kind of the only option sometimes for them interesting i mean one thing about our trans moment is a whole bunch of girls have decided they want to be gay boys right that and that i think that's autoandrophilia oh absolutely but they're heterosexual yeah. yeah they're absolutely heterosexual yeah and and like it, yeah in my book i actually use the term ambi-heterosexual for these situations of when someone is both allo and auto-heterosexual, you know? And because, like, these type of people will end up, like, if they post-transition, they'll try to assimilate into, like, the homosexual scene, right? And so it's kind of like a discrete group of people. And so, it, yeah, it can be useful to have a term for when someone is both of those things. Um, it seems like a very hard life seems like it's very difficult to for auto heterosexuals to find stable relationships or to have what what's generally considered healthy relationships because it's a lot more complex yeah it can be harder for them to find relationships or for them to make them last past a year or so but there's also plenty of examples of them that have figured out how to do long-term relationships. But I would agree that like on average, it is probably harder for them to maintain relationships because some of that natural energy that would usually be directed towards the other is instead being redirected towards like your own state of embodiment. And so it doesn't leave as much for there to like glue the relationship together. Hmm. I feel really bad for the girls who have been promised they can be gay boys because there are not enough. I mean, gay men don't like that. It's, they're not going to be able to find I mean, gay male yeah, partners. Yeah, based on what I've seen, it does seem harder comparatively um, for them to do that. And I, I think it's the not having a penis thing is probably the biggest but factor a, there. That's... I don't think it is. Apparently, no. apparently there are legions of heterosexual men who are willing to say that they're gay men in order to date these women. So all is not lost. Yeah, what were you going to say, Karina? Yeah, I don't think it's about whether or not these women who identify as gay men have penises. I don't think that's really the, the, the issue. I think the problem is that they're women. Even if they went on testosterone and had like the deeper voice and yeah. such? And I say that because there's a growing detrans community, detrans male community, and I'm I'm hearing some information. I'm trying to learn firsthand that there are gay men who really it's they're indifferent about whether their their partners had a penile amputation. That that's not really the uh, the thing that's going to be the dispositive feature of the relationship. Wait, you just talked and, about and penile the, amputation. Are you, are you, I thought you, I thought we were talking about autoandrophilic females being with homosexual males. Were we not? We are, but, but you said, well, they, I don't think that would work because they don't have a penis, but I think that there are uh, homosexual or, or gay detrans males that have been through sex reassignment surgery that are finding that there are gay men who are still interested in having relationships with them. 
And it's it's not about the penis, in other words. It's about still being same-sex attracted. So it doesn't it doesn't necessarily matter that the woman's had testosterone and looks buff and you know has a has a muscular body or anything. There, that person's still a woman. Right. I think. Yeah. I. This is another one of those things where, when we're talking about gender-based attraction, like for some people it'll be more of a sex-based attraction, and for others. Mm-hmm. It'll be more gender based and it, it's kind of individual as as to whether they care about various characteristics. I think a lot of people are sexually attracted. I think gender based attraction is my parents were so yes, all of our parents, presumably many of our parents i mean there is there are other ways to conceive sure. a child but but I think that um gender based attraction is maybe not. I don't know. It's it's more niche. Seems very modern. It's pretty modern. Yeah. It might be. Yeah. I I don't know of any figures on of any studies that have sort of measured that to figure out the relative size of these different groups. So I I can't speak to that. I mean, just thinking about my own experience, it's like there's it, it's a very primal thing, and you don't choose your orientation, and you don't choose you don't really choose what your body responds to, I guess. I mean, you can condition it. And I think it's different for men. I think men are more uh, imprintable. Men seem to have a vulnerable phase in early adolescence where they imprint and are left with kinks and fetishes for life that women don't seem to have. But, um, my my little pony has ruined an entire generation, Nina. Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention porn. <laughs> my little pony porn. My, wait, my Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh Yeah, of course, rule 34 there's porn of that. Yeah. Of course. I I actually yeah, as part of my research for the book, at one point I I bought a a brony science book cuz there was a, a book on the science of bronies and um What's a lot of them do um, fantasize about um, the various ponies that they're attracted to. <laughs> See, I thought I was making a joke. And no. Actually, let me rephrase that. I was pr- I was praying. <laughs> I was praying to God, which until this instant I didn't believe in, but suddenly I have a, v- a very vivid need for one that I was joking. There are yeah, no atheists no. on heterodorks. Yeah. So yeah, bronies are real. How how would how do they imagine that they would consummate that relationship? I think it's a parasocial one. Um, I I don't. Okay. Yeah i I don't know of any instances of there being real physical cartoon ponies out in the world. So unfortunately, this this would be relegated to fantasy, as as sexy as it obviously <laughs> is. You know. That's another thing is that men seem to be able to. Men seem to have a lot of energy for sexual fantasy and they seem willing to invest a lot of time making media support materials for their sexual fantasies. Women, I don't think are as prone to that. Um, Liar. Have you seen the fan fiction out there? I wouldn't be so sure about I that. I have heard about it, yes. And I <laughs> yeah, know there's that hundreds it's... of thousands of stories written by <laughs> mm-hmm. horny women about uh, male male relationships. 
Oh, yeah. I've heard about that. Yeah, no, there's... To use a precise mathematical term, there's a metric fuck ton of stories out there about that. It's it's really impressive. So, yeah, it's probably just less visible because it's you can't just glance at a story and then know what it is. Whereas with the, the image-based stuff that males tend to make, it's very obvious immediately what it is. I was... Um had confessed to Nina a few months ago that I have a, a a secret love for paranormal romance novels. And last year I thought, you know what I would like to do is try to find a paranormal romance novel with gay lead characters. And you know, there's a lot of that material actually, but I was like, all of this is written by women. And I want to see if there's like a paranormal romance written by a gay man, but there's very little any, anywhere that has that sort of quality to it. It's all, it's all women writing yeah. paranormal romance novels. And, and I think something about that is, I think female sexuality tends to be more, instead, like with the males, it can be sort of simply like visual and like, wow, that's a hot body. And not so much about um, how the bodies are interacting. Whereas like, with females, they care more about the relational aspect of like, who is this guy? How does he feel about me? What's he like to his friends? Like, <laughs> you know, like there's all, this whole extra level of like, what's the guy's personality like? And that's hilarious. I like how both you and Corinna laugh. It's like, <laughs> yeah. silly women caring about bullshit like that. <laughs> who is well, I mean, this guy? <laughs> I think. No, I think it's... Yes, that's why I was laughing. Stupid women. <laughs> no, I think it's cool that women have that aspect of their their sexuality. It's, I don't, it's, you, it's kind probably, of wholesome in a lot Probably of survival related. It's like probably women have this instinctive need to know something about the person who's about to have sex with them because they might kill them. <laughs> right. It's. I think it's clearly an evolutionary <laughs> thing that came about through generations. I don't think so. No, I think it's all. I think it's all hormonal. <laughs> yeah, but the hormones would would support the survival of the woman. So women have. Oh, that's true. Yeah, so it's okay <laughs> if it's hormonal. It's that's true. Our hormones are are designed to keep us alive. Yes, Long thank enough God to reproduce. Science does not tamper with that sort of thing. <laughs> hey, do okay. How about this? Do women who who take testosterone are they more into visual uh, stimulus when they're taking testosterone? That, uh-huh. That's an interesting question. I've heard some anecdotes of that happening, but I, ha- I haven't seen any studies. We should ask but, the many yeah. female trans people that we know who take testosterone. We will. We'll have one of the errands on and ask. Oh, excellent. Yeah. I think I've talked with that about um, Aaron Terrell before. You might want to have him on. Yeah. We mm-hmm. like Aaron. So how much of, how does, uh, let's see, if it's auto-heterosexuality, would it also be auto-homophobia? Like if you hate your sex? Right. Like there's that, I've sort of thought about that. Like what's the term for that, that inverse where it, it changes your sentiments and then makes you hate your sex. And I, I think that would be the analogous word, but due to how homophobia is typically used, I don't think it, that word has any viability just because it wouldn't make sense to people. Well, we're already, we've already sort of 
<laughs> Ignore things that make sense auto, to most people. Wouldn't it be autoandrophobia? Right. Well, for an for MTF, the man, it would be. For a man, yeah. it would be autoandrophobia, and for a woman, it would be autogynophobia. Auto- but as a general thing, yeah. it would be autohomophobia. Right. Yeah. No, I, I've definitely thought of that, and, um, yeah, I decided that word didn't seem viable, so I didn't mention it in the book. But yeah, I say go I, I for it because we've already we've already strayed far from the normal. Um. I don't know. I put a lot of thought into like the words I chose and how they lock together because I tried to make a cohesive framework, like because I'm trying to put this meme plex out there and have it have it hold up and be able to copy itself. So there needs to be like an internal cohesiveness and it needs to be able to adapt to the culture that already exists. I was well, let me ask let me ask you another question here because you're talking about the meme plex. I think that one of the the worst things that's happened on Twitter or in the world maybe. Uh, aside from poverty and and other sorts of things, uh, famine uh, would would next to poverty and famine would be the abuse of the term AGP as as part of the the culture war. Actually, actually, I'd I'd actually fit that between famine and poverty. Actually, yeah, I can't speak about the relative importance of it, but I will say that I agree that yeah. AGP has been abused, um, and it, it's been used in a way that has made the problem worse of like the denial of it. Cause it's the way it often gets used is um, to like shame people or make them feel gross or to like elicit disgust. And it's actually, you know, the more I learned about it, the more I was like, this is pretty tame and not that big of a deal. And people need to learn how to chill out and just talk about it. It doesn't have to be a big deal. The, the way I see it is that there are some extraordinary individuals who have some, uh, absolutely unsupportable behavior um, that are are also AGP and that you you see some of the stuff that they're doing and you think that is horrifying how how can I create a label to describe what is horrifying to me about this person and it's not like uh, you, you know there's if you were to like look at the, the gay men there's some really, Horrifying people like Jeffrey Dahmer, right? You wouldn't say, ah, those homosexuals uh, because of Jeffrey Dahmer. Right. But but when it comes to uh, autogynophilic men, there might be somebody who's who's just as offensive in certain ways. And they, ah, it's, it's all the AGPs. Right. Yeah, there's definitely that dynamic happening where... You know, with with some of the bad examples, you know, like Yaniv or like Chris Chan, for instance, mm. you know, people that are obviously AGP, but um, but their issue is not the AGP. It's it's their behavior <laughs> is the issue. It's yeah. The thing about AGP is that most men with AGP do not accept AGP. And like if they just accepted it, and then dealt with it in a sane way, it wouldn't be so much of an issue. So I used to call that autogynophobia is like, or internalized, like they have, so many have this internalized shame that's so deep that they can't even acknowledge what's going on. And it, it makes a feedback loop and it makes their behavior more and more extreme 
and yeah, because the shame hostile like it's it's because it like when it it makes the second self inside of you that the desires of this other self often col- conflict quite sharply with your original default self. You know, like if you start original, if you've assimilated into being a man and you're like, okay, I'm masculine and totally normal, straight and all that. And then over time, your AGP makes you do this feminine stuff that makes you sort of emotionally freak out. Like, what the hell am I? Like, why is this happening? Mm -hmm. Then I think it can lead to a lot of shame. And then just not being able to integrate that truth that you just authentically like those things and it's okay. Um, it makes it so that people can lash out in unfortunate ways. And that's, that's part of why I want it to sort of destigmatize this attraction to being the other sex. Cause it's the inability to talk about it is I think what has led to gender ideology even existing because, cause people need, mm. people need an explanation for, for why transgenderism exists like why do people want to live as the other sex why are people sometimes quite gender atypical you know people need an explanation for that and right now the only explanation available is the gender ideology one you know and if if instead people were told hey there's there's two types of gender inversion that happen there's a heterosexual kind and there's a homosexual kind and here's what each respective type is like, and here's how they're similar, and here's how they differ. Um, I think we could have a good, much more reasonable explanation of gender stuff without resorting to the sort of like woo that is out there now. Yeah, and also uh, it seems like some men are so, they're so aggressive about it that, I don't know, there's so much association with autogonophiles who are trying to transgress women's boundaries at every opportunity. And I don't know if that's related to their, their autophobia. I'll just call it autophobia. (laughs) Uh, Where they, they can't seem to cope with what's happening. I don't know if that makes their propensity to violate worse. I don't know if, if they could just accept that yeah, they're they're men like you like you say like you seem to accept autogynophilia like I like to believe yeah. I accept autogynophilia. I w- I would think that if you have this and you're in denial about it and you need this constant external validation for it because you're unable to validate yourself in it, maybe that would amplify antisocial behavior. Yeah, I think I think with it the mainstream ideas around the gender stuff is such that there's this magical thing called gender identity that just happens in some people for some reason that we can't quite mm. figure out. And it definitely has nothing to do it with happens sex. in everybody. Right. Yeah. It happens in everybody. Right. And, and if, it's you, just... if you can't notice that it's happening in you, God still exists. You're just in, in denial of him. Yeah. I like, that's pretty common right now that everyone thinks everyone has an inner sensation of being a gender. I don't know if it's actually been measured, like the exact sort of estimated the proportion of people that have an inner sense of being a gender. Um, that'd be interesting to know. Do you have one? Um, not often. Some, I mean, sometimes when autogynophilic mental shifts happen, where um, sort of, there's like this internal feeling of being feminine that can occur. 
it's nice. It's good feeling. I like it. It's there is like a temporary inner sensation of having sort of a feminine essence. Um, but I, I understand where it comes from and that it's just like kind of a beautiful illusion. And so I just roll with it in, in that way. But I don't have like a consistent inner feeling of being a particular gender. It's intermittent. I, I used to be quite protective of having people see me as a woman. I used to feel very defensive about that. Like and that you needed them I, to. I don't. And yeah. Yeah. It's, that can be a thing. But not anymore. Yeah. Well, I not, mean, not imagine since, it. Not since Nina humbled me. I mean, tamed yeah, you're me. co-hosting a show with like <laughs> someone who identifies as a turf. So like, I wouldn't expect you to. It's, yeah, it's okay. She's autoandrophilic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm turned on by identifying as a turf. And if I ever have sex, right. it's I'm just going to be thinking of myself as a turf. Right. And like screaming out, <laughs> get out of my spaces and you don't belong here. And you're a man, not a woman. And then that's so hot. <laughs> there, there's obviously a dynamic here, which is that Nina wants to be the more masculine one of us. And I appreciate that. And I want to be the more feminine one of us. And and uh, I appreciate that. So we this is what's. I, I think this is what's going to go go down in the lore, Nina. Oh, I see. So we're in one of those. Um, we're in one of yeah. those. Auto- Can I call you daddy? <laughs> I mean, I don't control your speech, Corinna. So that, that was a solid yes, is what I heard. <laughs> I mean, and she blushed, which I think is a sign of yeah. I like being, uh, interest. I like being called daddy. <laughs> daddy right. King. Okay, good. I'm going to call yeah. you daddy too, Corinna. You can. You're you're the owner of your speech. Because if I'm if I'm auto androphilic, then what I really want is a gay relationship with a gay man. God, <laughs> this is this really is the worst timeline. This is why I am really glad that I am in menopause, and that this is all a joke now. Phil, let me ask you uh, to to tell us a little bit about your book and where people can go to follow <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, that was very meandering. We didn't get to talk about it too much with the book. Um, so let's see. The book, it's it's coming out June 13th. It's called Auto Heterosexual, Attracted to Being the Other Sex. It's about the most common kind of trans, the most common source of gender dysphoria, the most common reason people decide to transition gender. So if, if for anyone that wants to understand transgenderism, I think it's a good idea to first understand its most common form. I think that's a good starting thing. And then, you know, then mm-hmm. you can move on to understanding the other type. And then you pretty much got it at that point. But yeah, my book is about the most common kind of trans. And you can, if you want to be um, notified with updates when it'll come out, you can go to autohetbook.com. I have a Substack at phililly.substack.com and i'm on twitter uh my handle is at autogynophilic because so many of my kind have so much shame that that was just still sitting there ready to, for, to be taken so i took it and yeah it's it's a very it's a thorough book i explain the most common kind of trans and i also have a series of chapters that sh- show the broader form of autosexual trans identity and how it's not limited to gender it also can extend to disability, age, species, and race. 
And so, yeah, I, you're I, not a you're not a sex researcher, though. I did do you're one, sort of an outsider. I am an outsider. I did do one small survey right. that formed the because there was no data on transracialism and I wanted to collect some. So I did. And so I there's my first, I guess, study, you could call it in the transracialism chapter in there, mm-hmm. which, by the way, transracialism is legit. I just want to say that. And yeah, that's so. Yeah, my book is about the most common kind of trans and the most and the broader autosexual theory of trans identity that can account for all the the types of trans identity that people kind of see as like kooky or weird. Like this theory can mm-hmm. account for them. So uh, just to contextualize this a little bit, sometimes science journalists who are, who are also not researchers will do a survey of a topic, and so that's that's sort of similar to what this is, is you're not part of academia, but you're, you're doing a survey of, of all of the research and then coming up with some synthesis of it. I did. Yeah. I basically did a big lit review and right. And so most of it is a lit review. The only original thing is that transracial survey. I collected a bunch of, I also collected a bunch of information from various trans species subcultures and sort of, Oh yeah, it's, I went really deep into trans species identity because yeah. it's really interesting. And it's, I think it's pretty cool. The, the, the people who are trans turtle, are they difficult to bring out of their shell? Uh, you've been waiting to use that one for a while, probably. And there was the I opportunity. Six episodes. <laughs> There's not many trans turtles for the record. Uh, canine species are the most common. Can, um, feline species, mm. second most common. And then like reptiles and dragons are the third most common type of uh, trans species identity. Do you think the dogs and the cat? Well, I guess I could. I'll have to read your book to find this out. But I wonder if it's because yeah. these people are imprinting on their pets. I I actually do propose that because there was a there was a one uh, Therian survey that found that ninety six percent of the respondents had a childhood pet. But then I looked up pet ownership rates in America, and they're generally like forty to seventy percent of households have a pet. And so that suggests to me that it might be uh, like a precondition for developing it is to have Mm. childhood exposure to various animals. And it would also account for why people are attracted to dragons because seeing that in cartoons and such. Spyro corrupted another generation. Yes. (laughs) Well, it's good looking dragon. Do you know about the turf tranny Alliance, Phil? I think I saw one of you post it on an account, but yeah. Is it what, is it what it sounds like? Yeah, and the slogan is "Sex is real, people are weird," and people are. That's a bumper sticker. People are yeah. definitely weird. So, um, yeah, I guess uh, those of you, uh, auto. What did you call the the auto species? Oh, uh, those are, I would say they're autozoophilic. Okay, yeah. So, um, you you autozoophiles out there, you two can join the Turf Tranny Alliance. Because you're weird. Yeah, I don't think most of them will be interested. So, you know, you're pretty niche. uh, It's a pretty niche alliance here. Yeah. Could be the Turf Tranny Autozophile Alliance. They're still arguably uh, tranny in some way. It's just not gender. It's just species. Right. Yeah. And like a third of them are transgender, too. We should make this a broader umbrella. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so I'll... glad I'm retired. I'm retired. This is not my problem. 
This is the problem of the future. Phil, thank you for spending some time with us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you, Phil. All right, Turfs and Trannies, we hope that you were entertained and informed by this episode of Heterodorks. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Heterodorks. You can support us by visiting our page at anchor.fm slash heterodorks or by supporting Nina Paley at patreon.com slash Nina Paley. You can also support